Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. So I'm recording this on Tuesday, six days ago, because this baby of ours could show up any minute here. In fact, we have an induction scheduled for Saturday, two days ago, if it comes to that. So by the time you're hearing this, he has arrived, I think. Um, For patrons of the show, I have a little thread going in the Facebook group, and I will post a photo there and, and keep you guys updated. Everybody else, I'll include some kind of update in the next week or two when the next full episode comes out. This week, my guest is Reverend Dr. Catherine Kelsey. She goes by Kathy. These are the kinds of Christians that have changed my faith, that have given me the most permission in more of an implicit way than an explicit way. These are Christians who are theologically liberal, but they are full of richness of faith that comes out of their direct experience of God. And I'm talking about Kathy. I'm also talking about Friedrich Schleiermacher, the theologian around which our conversation today is built. Um, This chat was not only interesting, but it actually was kind of personally healing and challenging for me, which I think will show up, especially in the second half. And for a lot of you, I think you'll uh, find it to be the same. I knew that I was interviewing a scholar. That's what I set out to do. But I was pleasantly surprised by how pastoral Kathy is. So I guess I'm saying 
come for the history, the scholarship, the the shared language around your experience of thinking through liberal Christianity. Stay for the personal transformation. All right, let's get into it. Kathy, thank you so much for joining me today. I would imagine that people writing books called things like thinking about Christ with Schleiermacher don't do tons of public appearances. <laughs> but your book was recommended to me by Trip Fuller, who hosts the Homebrewed Christianity podcast. Uh, and I just have found it really helpful and interesting. Let's set up what's going on here. So we are talking about a 19th century and late 18th century thinker, theologian, Friedrich yep. Schleiermacher. Um, that sounds like it's going to be really boring and have nothing to do with us, but that's not the case because he is a man of his age, but totally a man of our age as well, as we'll get into. I guess my first question for you is, how did you come to his work and what led you to become basically a, a Schleiermacher scholar? I first met uh, Schleiermacher in a systematic theology course when I was doing my MDiv, getting ready to be ordained. And didn't understand him. It was dense reading. And um, I was in my really heavily feminist theology phase. And uh, as an early 19th century German, he was not a feminist. Um, mm. Although one could argue that he made space for feminism. So, so I walked away. I pastored churches for eight years. And then I went back to school to do doctoral work and took a seminar in Schleiermacher thinking, okay, he's the beginning of the modern period in theology. I really need to know something about this person. And I began to fall in love the second time. And I fell in love because he began to give me a way of theologically thinking about my faith experience that made sense to me in a way that other theological options hadn't made sense. And, and that's precisely why I found your book, which is both kind of a, a summary of his thinking, but also you kind of interact with his thinking as a modern person trying to understand faith uh, and science and all of that. That's why I found it helpful. And that's why I wanted to talk to you, because there is something about the problems he was dealing with that really are a nice lens for, for us here in the 21st century. Yeah. And his theology starts with the assumption, he says this explicitly uh, in a number of places, each Christian is responsible for figuring out our own theology. It's exactly the opposite of find the true theology and then conform to it. It is instead of thinking about one's own experience of relationship to God, Christ, the universe, and the faith community as a whole. And as we run into different questions or problems or things we have to choose among, it gives us some tools for thinking about those new things that we hadn't experienced before. Yeah, it's kind of like if you would consider something like a, a conservative Catholic view or um, a lot of conservative Protestant views in, in various circles as like top-down authority structure, we mm -hmm. have figured out the truth, we have sorted this all out, your job is to submit to God 
in parentheses, never stated through our interpretation, mm-hmm. right? So he's saying, no, that's not really what's going on here. And that's not what should be going on. But rather, there's a kind of a democratization, a bottom up. Um, the, the church is really like for him, it seems to me on my very short reading of your book, uh, the church is like all the individual people who have a bottom up relationship with Christ in some way. Yeah. Although uh, he has a stronger sense of the relationships we have with each other as a community. Right, which we're going to get to. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The, um, but I think the other thing to say, to be fair to him, is he offers an approach to theology that makes space for all different kinds of theologies, including theologies that uh, know what the truth is and tell you what to believe. Oh, interesting. So, yeah. so he has a developmental understanding of human being and human life that allows him to acknowledge that there are periods in human life where we really need external uh, certainties. Hmm. And, um, and some adults stay in that developmental space for their entire lives. And other adults uh, move beyond that space and need to... Uh, articulate the nuances and the truth for themselves. And he makes space for both of those. Yeah, that's really interesting. And that also is a, a man of our time uh, as well there, right? Exactly. So let's let's get into his time, though, a little bit. So what is the milieu in which Schleiermacher finds himself? What do we need to understand about his time in order to understand him? So his time is a time of enormous historical change, just like our time is a time of enormous historical change. In his lifetime, Germany went from being 120-some small little states to being totally overwhelmed by Napoleon, reorganized by Napoleon, and then when Napoleon's finally defeated in outside of Berlin in 1813, the king releases the Prussian serfs from their attachment to the land, and they start moving into urban areas. And so it's a time of huge opportunity and no safety net. Interesting. Anybody. And and rapid urbanization and people coming rapid together. Yeah, from different the, walks of life. Yeah, right. At the same time, there is also um, among people who are not necessarily all of them with a college education, because women can't get a college education at that point. But people who are thinking are reading people like Immanuel Kant, and the Enlightenment is beginning to take hold. And that's begun to be applied to the authorities in Christian faith. So when Schleiermacher was born, you knew that Christian faith was true for one of two reasons. Either because the church said so, that's the Roman Catholic approach generally, or because the Bible said so. It's the Protestant approach. Yeah. The Protestant approach. And when historical criticism begins to be applied not just to secular texts, but to the Hebrew Bible and then to the New Testament, um, and folks begin to notice that the texts aren't completely logically consistent with themselves, that becomes a crisis of faith 
for individuals. And Schleiermacher offers an alternative understanding of what the ground of faith is. It's not because the church said so. It's not because the Bible said so. It's because we have experienced the truth of faith in a worshiping faith community. It's just incredible to me that he wrote that. You know, he wrote that book. It came out 220 years ago this year, mm-hmm. and and he, <laughs> you could just transpose that onto I don't know, just millions of Americans under the age of 50 uh, coming coming of age in, um, in mostly in Protestant, but in some Catholic circles as well. These two certainties, either you know, either the Church says it or the Scripture says it, and then there's like kind of a weird hybrid Protestantism where. It's actually it's what the pastor says, which is one reading of the text, right? Yeah. Uh, but it's but it's so similar. It's all these certainties, and then that's not seeming to work uh, for most of us, for many of us, and it didn't work for him either, right? So he goes to seminary, and basically he's uh, starts asking some questions. They say that kind of doubting isn't permitted here, and he he leaves seminary. So yeah. I mean, it's just it's incredible, right? Yeah. It is incredible. And and it gives us the gift of then someone who begins a search for himself, but he's a he's a person who really loves conversation with other people. And um and he's known for that in Berlin in the social circles he's part of, these parlor conversations that are happening in people's homes uh frequently, uh like couple times a week and engaging in conversation about what's what's real what matters how do you know uh and what difference does it make yeah (laughs) which is like his version of like having a handful of podcasts and then getting beers with people and talking about them it's like exactly it's incredible uh so his so his own story is that he leaves the seminary but he is a man of deep faith and he's like, I got to figure this out still. And so basically the work he does leads to him being known as the father of modern liberal theology. What does that mean? It means primarily that shift in what's the ground of authority for theology. That's the shift that grounds liberation theologies. Right. It's the shift that grounds um, natural theologies in the modern period as well. And um, – Say say a little bit about each of those. So my understanding is liberation theology, which I haven't read a ton of, but it's based in the experience of the oppressed. And and, and that's how I'm connecting it to Schleiermacher anyway, is like their experience counts and they only experience Christ in their own context of being oppressed people. And if Christ can't say anything to that oppression, then what kind of freedom is this really, right? Exactly. And – There's the further claim that persons who are experiencing uh, oppression have the right and the capability of interpreting Scripture accurately in as a result of the perspective they have in their context. Right. So that fights against and you see this again today in battles within the Catholic Church, which are sometimes make it in to the headlines uh, I think especially around the time that Pope Francis was uh, installed as the Pope, that he had some sympathy with liberation theologians in South America. And mm-hmm. and then the old guard Catholics are like, hey, liberation theology is not real theology. It's not dogma. It doesn't uh, line up with the 
2,000-year magisterium of the church. And these liberation theologians are like, that is based on false assumptions. And that's basically the same argument that Schleiermacher made. Yeah. So let's make a distinction between um, two words. You just used the word dogma. Dogma, or um, more commonly the word doctrine, refers to what the church teaches, whether that's a Protestant denomination, it has a doctrine, or the Roman Catholic Church, or the Orthodox Church, um, each of those has a particular understanding of theology that is what the church teaches. Right. Theology is a broader word than that. So you and I each have theologies. Each of us has our own particular interpretation. Even if we stay within a particular church's doctrine, we have our own particular emphases within it and understandings within it. And we also have the possibility of a theology that is not within the particular understandings of one denomination's doctrine. So Schleiermacher invites us all to be theologians. Right. Which is not the same as dogma. One thing I think it's worth mentioning about him, you know, so he is the father of modern liberal theology. At least in the States, there is uh, a very commonly held view that people who are theologically liberal are not pious. They don't have strong faith in the kind of general sense of that word. They don't pray a lot. They don't live their faith out. That's certainly what I was raised to believe growing up more conservative evangelical, that liberal Christians are, they're like Sunday Christians. They're not real Christians. This is not the case for Schleiermacher. He, at once he becomes a preacher, he never takes another job for like 50 years that doesn't involve weekly preaching. He's not an ivory tower type at all. In fact, his book to, uh, on religion – Speeches to the cultured despisers. Speeches to the cultured despisers. I mean it literally sounds like a cultural elite, you know, like kind of a middle America, um, you know, counterpunch. There's some things we should maybe make sure we're not getting wrong about him, right? Well, so what liberal has come to mean in the 21st century – has been influenced by a century of other stuff that's happened in between. Schleiermacher went to school in pietist schools, so in the Moravian Herrenhuter school uh, school system. And what's what's pietism exactly? Pietism would be um, an emphasis on an individual personal relationship with God and um, expressed in a community – but also in one's own uh, daily prayer, in one's participation in singing hymns and in uh, shared worship. And it um, in Schleiermacher's time, the pietist communities were not state churches. So it, it had – they were more like um, – the way we experience religion in the United States. You chose to be a part of a pietist community. It, you were born a citizen and enrolled in the state church. So so it was a faith that was owned, uh, a faith that had deep emotional roots, um, probably stronger emotional roots than intellectual roots. Uh, those were Those were both present, but the balance was weighted toward uh, emotional relationship. 
And that is true of Schleiermacher's emphasis throughout his theology. And he gets there by focusing on Jesus Christ, that being in relationship with God, having the mind of Christ in one's relationship with God. The more you focus in that direction, the harder and harder it is to judge as an outsider what somebody else's relationship with God is. So it's not simply manifest in doing 15 minutes of devotion in the morning and 15 minutes of devotion in the evening. It's not simply manifest in having a particular view of one or another um, issues that are contested in our culture, like abortion or uh, whether or not women can speak in church. The the a pietist view and Schleiermacher's view as a pietist view expects people to be perfectly and completely open to God in every moment of every day, because that's what Christ was. That's who Christ was. And the invitation to us is to become like that, is to follow Christ into that kind of relationship with God. It's beautiful. It's it's so interesting. It's mirroring another aspect of my own journey, which is I was raised with the personal relationship with Jesus Christ language ad nauseum. I've said this before. There were a few people like in my church community and at my Christian school that um, now I would look back and say, oh, they did have a sense of like of close relationality in the more kind of uh, contemplative tradition. Like I'm, I'm thinking there's a few people that had Brother Lawrence, Practice of the Presence of God on their bookshelf, probably. And I just didn't know what I was looking for. But mostly, personal relationship with Jesus Christ was just like an in-group signifier for conservative evangelical. And uh, really, no one talked very much about how to do that, what that actually looked like. You know, have your quiet times, you know, read and pray. So Some of that was there. Uh, but as a lot of people experienced, oftentimes the cultural signifiers, the political signifiers— these things were actually more important than the relationship with God. And, and so in my deconstruction and reconstruction and in discovering contemplative practice, um, I have come full circle on the relationality and, and have sort of tried to re, like reclaim that from um, a type of evangelicalism that was actually paralyzed by fear uh, and kind of hostage to political interests and hostage to just kind of like general, uh, like biologically and, and psychologically conservative impulses, which are, which are neither Christian nor non-Christian. Um, anyway, that's, that's a rambling way of saying it's so interesting that his relational focus, which is exactly the thing that so many of us grew up with and were kind of turned off by because it seemed hypocritical, uh, is the thing that keep like that keeps his faith so strong and actually, kind of relativizes it in terms of these absolute truth claims. Mm-hmm. So, so the prayer becomes as much about listening as it is about speaking. Exactly. That's the and, thing that was often missing, I think, in, in my upbringing. And instead of acting as though we can know the mind of God exactly as limited human beings, being willing to live in some mystery 
particularly when it comes to um, discerning what we ought to do in particular situations. Schleiermacher's isn't an easy approach to Christian faith because you don't ever get to know for sure by being able to check everything off the list that you are right with God. You know because you're living in it. And some days you know with more certainty than other days. And in the days when you don't know, you get together with other Christians, not because they're going to tell you how to fix the problem, but because they're going to be with you in the not knowing, in the discerning, in the discovering a way forward. And I mix Schleiermacher with with John Wesley's theology because I'm a Methodist. I hold um, an under a really strong understanding of fancy word prevenient grace, the grace that go that comes from God before we know to ask for it. It's the grace that gives every living thing every breath it takes. And um, when I when I live in that understanding of how present God is to us, that God's spirit is literally breathing in me, even when I don't know for sure that I'm in relationship with God right now. It's not certainty, but there's an okayness to the ambiguity of life that comes from that. I'm working on a, a paper right now. I'm in graduate school to become a psychologist. And um, I'm working on a, a kind of a narrative paper about my own faith trajectory. I just started working on it yesterday. And the the language that kind of came to me, I was trying to think of like, what's the narrative arc here? Or what's a narrative arc that I could do for this paper? And uh, I'm a person who has anxiety struggles. I, I have panic disorder that's in remission um, I probably had generalized anxiety at, at certain points of my life when when I was more keyed up. And I can trace this all the way back to at least third grade, and I don't have a ton of memories before third grade. So one way I've thought about describing that narrative tension is it is the tension between control on the one hand and wonder and awe on the other hand. Mm. And I think that basically I, I'm I'm a smart person, like I have a I have a robust intellect that I, of course, didn't earn, got that from my parents. But I've used that to control the world so that I'll be okay with the anxiety. And of course, as a young kid, I don't, I don't blame myself for that. Um, but what I've lost out on as a result of that is wonder and awe. You can't both be in awe and control the situation at the same time. They are mutually exclusive. Uh, and that seems really related to what you're talking about here. Yes, it is. It is. You actually might love a classic uh, book in the contemplative tradition, Will and Spirit, A Contemplative Psychology by Gerald May from 1982. Um, He talks about the um, awe as uh, that release of ego and being um, and just being present. Mm-hmm. In a moment, he argues that that is both a re- can be a religious experience, but that it's also 
a very common experience, like we experience it a couple of dozen times a day. But we mostly don't know notice it because our ego wants to hold on to it so badly. Well, with that understanding of um, contemplation, contemplation is being willing to be in those moments. Um, Schleimacher provides us a theology that makes sense of that contemplative experience of God. Yeah, so I have this quote from him here that I think is so rich. I've got three of these, one here at the beginning and then a couple toward the end of our conversation. Um, They're all from that same book, the On Religion um, book in 1799. I'm going to read this one and then let's just – I just want to hear you rap about it. Okay. Religion is the outcome neither of the fear of death nor of the fear of God. So I already love this. It answers a deep need in man, mankind. It is neither a metaphysic, so it's not about all the things that exist, nor a morality of the things that are right and wrong, but above all and essentially, it is an intuition and a feeling. So religion is not really about all, you know, what's God like, what are all the gods or whatever, what's the right thing to do? It's, it comes out of the experience of being human. And if it's a fear of dying or a fear of God's wrath, that's not really true religion. Or we might say now that's not spirituality. We, we might use either term in the way we're talking about this. Mm-hmm. That's incredible. What do you think when you hear that quote? He's pointing his, because he wrote this book for his friends, uh, for the friends that he was sitting in living rooms with having conversations. And he's trying to help them notice that religion isn't, is about what we're made for, um, that it's about that wonder and awe that we were talking about, that it's about how we're noticing and in relationship, not just to the people, but to the whole universe around us, all the other creatures that we're in this web with. And it's about being fully alive as a part of all of that, responsive to it, noticing it. And fear, fear of death, fear of uh, retribution, fear gets in the way of being fully alive. And it prevents us from noticing the what's around us. And it prevents us from noticing how we're gifted and what we might be able to become in, in relationship with each other. Yeah. So the fear, there's a couple directions to go with this, but one of them that comes to mind is fear does work. It works in the short term, right? It gets results. Uh, there's really good data that, you know, when presidents, you know, use language about foreign adversaries and that terrorism is around the corner and stuff, you know, this stuff motivates votes. It gets people to the ballot box. Mm-hmm. I think that, um, so I'm, I've been doing some research uh, early research for my dissertation about end times theology and mental health. And one of the things that I've found uh, almost in every single person's story is that the fear of hell and then the basically the ratcheting up of when that might come via the rapture, via the end times. So you might live to 90, but not if Jesus is coming back any day. So it's a it accelerates hell or the possibility mm. of hell. And it works. It gets people coming back to church. 
you know, there's psychological studies about where they if they tell people something's haunted, you know, they cheat less on these little tests and stuff. But it works in the short term at what cost in the long term? And can that actually produce faith? Can that produce the kind of thing that Christ seems to be inviting his disciples and the people who are listening to him into? It doesn't look the same, right? Right. So I think the base question is, is religion a tool of people in authority or with power trying to manage the rest of us? Or is religion about our growing into our fullest selves and our communities growing into their fullest selves as community? So fear is a great tool if you think that religion is for the purpose of managing other people consciously or not, whether God needs to manage us or whether other people need to manage God us. needs me, the pastor, to manage them. Yeah, right. Conveniently. Yeah. yeah. Um, or is religion for helping people who are born into societies that have sin in them already? Um, so it's inescapable. Regardless of how it started, it's inescapable now. Right. Is it about our being able to diminish that sin and become wholer, becoming more like Schleiermacher turns again to Christ as kind of the the most perfect human being. You don't have to hold his unique his focus on the uniqueness of Christ in order for that understanding that there are a very few people whose relationship with God the universe all that is is such that their lives help us recognize what's possible for us yeah you you talk you said the term you know fuller self uh more truly ourselves and i think that people can so this is another interesting place where it's good to actually bring Schleiermacher in, because I think that nowadays people hear that and they go, oh, that's like woo-woo. That's like kind of new age, like Buddhism light kind of Hollywood kind of language. And it can be, right? Your full mm-hmm. self on a Dr. Phil or Dr. Oz episode is not what Schleiermacher is talking about. He's talking about the God consciousness that Christ had in essentially perfect form. That we yeah. are called to emulate to the extent that we will be able to do it. And so truest self is actually most Christ-like self. It's both. Exactly. Christ yes. as the true human, the, to the extent that we really become what we might be able to become as God created us, that is the most like Christ we could become. Yeah, yeah. It's so hard to talk about truest self in in our consumerist culture because everybody's trying to sell us their thing by claiming that it's going to get us to our happiness. uh, And when we've reached our happiness, we'll be at our truest self. Well, anybody who's trying to sell me something, uh, I'm not sure that's going to reach my truest self. Jesus wasn't trying to sell people anything. He invited them into community. He invited them 
to try following him and see what happened. And that was enough to be life-changing and a miracle in their lives. Yeah. It's a, it's a totally different thing. And so Schleiermacher cuts through all the other things that Christianity has been made to be in its alliance with government and, you know, the multiple things that it has become, cuts through that and takes us back to Jesus and basically says, look at this life and recognize you could be like this. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to take a little break. And then when we come back, we are going to get into uh, three presuppositions that Schleiermacher makes and then the four reasons that you think that his theology is useful to us today. So we'll be right back. There is a very exciting patron exclusive episode that will have just dropped a couple days before this comes out. Two sisters that I respect very much, Lindsay Stranigan and Danielle or DL Mayfield. Uh, Lindsay is a social media maven uh, and used to work at the record label that my band was signed to. That's how we became friends years ago. And Danielle is an author and co-host of a podcast, The Prophetic Imagination Station. And they were raised uh, interestingly, I guess you would say, in their home. A lot of talk about becoming martyrs for Christ. Um, a lot of interesting stuff around their relationship with their parents. And we got into it for about an hour. Uh, it was sensitive enough stuff that it did not seem to be a good idea to put it on the normal feed. So it is a special treat for those of you who support the show as patrons. Um, I don't have any clips for it. I'm trying to put this thing together pretty quickly because the baby could be here any day. But trust me when I say you will want to listen to this episode if you uh, are in the Patreon group. If you'd like to join that group, uh, you get at least two of these exclusive episodes every month. This month there's actually three because I threw in a bonus one there where we reacted to the Oscars and talked about all the uh, nominees for Best Picture with a couple friends of mine. And uh, mostly I think people didn't care about that because they don't come here for movie takes, which I understand. But I love movies, and so I loved talking about it. So anyway, that's the third episode this month. Also, there's a Facebook group, which is for patrons only, which has actually been a really good idea. I think it's created a, a really intentional community on there. So if you want to have access to this stuff, patreon.com slash dancoke or youhavepermissionpod.com. Click become a patron. There are links to both of those in the show notes. All right, back to this conversation with Kathy about Schleiermacher and the beginning of liberal Christianity, but of course, about so much more. Okay, so let's go through these three presuppositions that Schleiermacher mm -hmm. makes in order to do his theological work. And talk a little okay. bit about each. So the first one is everyone who comes into the sphere of Christ's influence is aware that he is the redeemer in person, right? Like people who met Jesus on earth. Yes. Okay. It definitely means those folks, but it also means anybody. Uh, so the sphere of Christ's influence continues among people who have experienced uh, redemption themselves and are 
living themselves into their own Christ-likeness. So that sphere of Christ's influence isn't everybody in every single church, but in every faith community, Schleiermacher believes there are at least a handful of people who are uh, lived, living and inspired in that way. And if you come into the sphere of their influence, you begin to see who Christ was, and and that's the sphere of his influence. Okay, so I, I think I understand that now. When I first read this in your book, I was like, I kind of marked it as a problem for me because I was reading it with sort of evangelical uh, background language, where it's like, well, what's important is to confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Christ is Lord. And anybody that were to come in to contact with Christ would know that Christ is Lord, this kind of abstract theological claim about Christ being the second person of the Trinity and propitiation for sins. But again, what he's always talking about is full humanity. Christ-likeness is like yeah. full humanity. So when I come into contact with a person who truly loves God and neighbor, I am immediately aware that this is the way to live. That's true. Mm-hmm. And that's not yeah. the same as these abstract principles. No. And so the, the key word is redemption. Yeah. And to think about what, what preposition do you put with redemption? Do you think about what you're redeemed from, preposition from, or do you think about what you're redeemed for? Mm. Schleiermacher's emphasis is on what we're redeemed for. And we're redeemed for it in this life. So it's not just that we're redeemed for heaven and some future reward. We're actually redeemed for becoming like Christ, having the mind of Christ, having the capacity to love and to love neighbor and to be perfectly open to God, to love God in every moment. That's what we're redeemed for. And until we encounter Christ in Schleiermacher's faith, it's just Christ. Until we encounter that person who embodies Christ, we don't know. We can't believe that it's really possible for us. Oh, interesting. It's a great idea, but I can't do it. Until I see another human being or a community of human beings, because any one individual is only partially going to have the mind of Christ. But in the community as a whole, the flat sides of me and the flat sides of you and the flat sides of our listener kind of balance out, and somebody can look at the three of us and see and get a pretty clear picture of what the mind of Christ is. Okay, so I love this because this makes so much more sense to me then one of the one of the things I was given growing up, which is like, if you can explain the four spiritual laws to someone and they can intuit the fact that their sin separates them eternally from God and there needed to be a propitiation, there needed to be a blood sacrifice, that blood sacrifice was Jesus. Here's how they know it. It's written in these passages. And if they just say, yes, God, I accept this blood sacrifice, then they're good and they're in. Nowhere in that story is anything about how Christ lived what Christ called us to do. It may be true. It may be true in the abstract. I'm not personally convinced of that anymore. Um, But it still has nothing to do with Christ, at least uh, Jesus's life, I should say, right? That's right. And it also, um, it leaves us in the same 
actual condition in our day to day lives that we were in before. Yes. So it's a it's a covering us. There's a mask or a screen with Christ's name on it or face on it. And that's that language stands, that's often used, right? That stands between God and us, but that leaves us in the hot mess we're in on the other side of the screen. And what Schleiermacher is proposing to us is that to to experience redemption is to realize that it is possible from the hot mess, the very hot mess that we're in, to become more like Christ and to become, therefore, more fully human, more fully ourselves. And he can point to the text, right? So there are people who are obviously changed by their interaction with Jesus on earth. Yeah. And then there's the actions of the early church in, in the book of Acts. And then he can also just point to like anyone who's had experience of a really loving, peaceful Christ-like person knows what he's talking about. And mm-hmm. uh, this, so many things make me think of Dallas Willard, the late philosopher from and theologian mm-hmm. from USC. But this, again, he says the great omission, you know, we, we make converts, but we don't make disciples. That's another way of kind of talking about what Schleiermacher is saying here. Uh, He's focusing on disciples. Disciples live like Christ lived, and then they instantiate Christ-likeness in their lives. So this is making more more sense to me. And and the whole process of sanctification, fancy word, becoming more like Christ, because it takes time. It's not like flipping a switch where we're suddenly one thing, a different thing than what we were. Instead, the, the experience of redemption is the beginning of a process of becoming for the rest of our lives and, as far as I know, uh, for the rest of eternity. Yeah. So this leads really nicely into his second presupposition, which is that redemption is available through Christ prior to Christ's death and resurrection. I kind of just teed you up for this one. Schleiermacher reads the New Testament really carefully, and he reads the account of the interactions between Jesus and his disciples, in particular, Jesus and the women who followed him, and and he says, you know, it's clear that they experienced redemption, and he's not dead yet. So, therefore, redemption cannot be dependent on his death or his resurrection. They confirm it. They confirm that there is nothing more powerful than the love of God and that there is nothing that um, can end the connection, the intimacy that we can experience with God unless we choose it. From that insight, he interprets the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Christ as being important moments in faith. But he actually says in his systematic theology that it's possible to be a faithful Christian and uh, not believe in the physical resurrection of Christ. And that's something that comes up all the time um, in talking with people kind of living in this progressive Christian space. Uh, and, and, and people have a hard time with it, understandably so. It's uh, sort of the cornerstone of all the creeds, of the earliest Christian creeds, uh, the empty tomb. Um, but the reason that he gives for that is that 
look, people were obviously saved before Jesus was dead. And you also have like, there's all these times where Jesus seems to forgive sins. Uh, he forgives sins of entire families. There's a lot of things that throw kind of wrenches in the tidy pictures that we often have about sin mm-hmm. and salvation. If you think that there's a decisive thing that changed at Jesus, either at his death on Friday or his resurrection on Sunday, then you interpret the early church differently than you interpret the disciples before Jesus' right. death and resurrection. And you you end up making some historical, quote-unquote, uh, judgment calls about who wrote what and when it got written in the New Testament based on that theological assumption. And Schleiermacher does not hold that theological assumption. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um it does kind of remove the fangs a little. If you, if you buy what he's saying, it removes the fangs from the resurrection debate, which, you know, as I understand it, is a very complicated debate. And it's very hard to understand what a resurrected body looks like. The text doesn't give us a very good understanding of it. It gives us kind of different understandings of it. There's sort of the physics of it that seem hard to think about. Um, for me, the 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 clearest way to understand it in the past has been it is whatever comes next sort of breaking into this world. But even that's just basically a mystery statement um, because Mm -hmm. I don't really know anything about how that world works or bodies work. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I don't, you know, I, I confess the resurrection, but I don't understand it basically. And this is one way of going, cool. You don't need to understand, like you don't need to understand it even more than you already knew you didn't need to understand it. And it's, because he's already saving people. Yeah. In my use of Schleiermacher's theology for myself, the resurrection becomes a symbol for the unbreakable love of God. When I'm using it in that symbolic way, I confess it, absolutely, but I, I don't have to describe it in material terms. Yeah, that's really interesting. And and no one in the early church did either, right? They weren't trying to nail down the particulars either. Mm-hmm. So it is kind of funny that we well, it, we're responding to modern science and you know, it's it's understandable it's an understandable reaction from Christians living today. Well, it's also a backing off from mystery. If we feel like we have to explain right. it, we're trying to control the world we live in by understanding it. So, <laughs> if we're Back able, to my story. Yeah. Yeah. So if we're able to live in the mystery, we're actually more like uh, human beings a thousand years ago who didn't have the benefits of all the explanations we've got. But it also, when we live in the mystery, that allows us to stay with wonder and awe, which is where we experience the presence of God um, most easily. And and so letting go of... Uh, the desire to have an explanation is to let go into trusting the one who loves us. A lot of this really hinges on Schleiermacher's idea of Christ having this perfect God consciousness, right? And, and it's, if I understand it correctly, the, the way that Christ saves people before his death is that they come into contact with God through Christ's consciousness of God. Um, his sort of perfect God consciousness. And, and they are then invited into uh, that same consciousness, of course, at a 
lower quality than, than Jesus had, but nonetheless sufficient to basically bring about their redemption, which you've already said is a lifelong process, possibly post-life into eternity process. So can you say a little bit more about what he thinks is going on with Christ's God consciousness? What What is that exactly? So it's not um, consciousness of God as an object. Okay. I've got a teapot in front of me. I'm conscious of the teapot. It's not that kind of consciousness of an object. Instead, it's a consciousness that is open to God in the moment. He claims that there's a space there that can be open to God. And when it is, then um, that allows God to do some directing of our attention, our awareness in uh, particular directions in the moment. So it's a yeah. it's a not a consciousness of God. It's actually an openness, an openness to, God. to God in the consciousness in our consciousness. Yes. Yeah. Yes. In an, in a part of our consciousness that we don't directly control. Okay, that's interesting. And but we see it. If we were to meet Jesus, we would see it, and we see it today in people who model Jesus. Yeah. They're open and, to God in sort of the depths of their consciousness. Yeah. And we experience at least a form of it in uh, activities that are uh, focused and creative. So for in, I experience it sometimes when I'm preaching or when I'm teaching a class. I'm really focused on wanting uh, wanting God's love to be available to the folks I'm talking to, and I'm focused on them and what their reaction is. And and I'm not really paying attention to myself, but I can get to the end of a sermon or a class session and look back on it and say, oh, I said more than I know. Hmm. Yeah. There was more that, that got communicated than I know to say. In a similar kind of way, some artists and writers will um, will encounter a character or will have a, a piece that they're working on begin to tell them where it wants to go. Right, right. There's a, there's a more that's happening there. And what Schleiermacher is, is suggesting to us is that for for you and for me, well, at least for me, those moments are fragmentary. They don't happen very often. And as soon as I want them to happen or I notice that they're happening, makes it unlikely that it'll happen. But but they're fragmentary. Imagine what it would be like if every moment of your life was like that. That's what Jesus experienced. So that leads to my, my next sub-question, which is, where, how would he think about Lao Tzu or Buddha or just people, um, Ramakrishna, you know, these examples of holy men and women, um, some of which are not in the Christian tradition, but seem to have had really strong impacts on other people. How would that fit into Schleiermacher's view? That's a great question. I think he's limited by his time. He's limited by... Um, no one comes to the Father but by me. But his theology invites us, if we're not limited 
in the same way invites us to notice other persons in history and in the present who seem to have that kind of openness and to welcome them. And I, I think if I were, it depends on the congregation I'm a part of, whether I would make a, a big deal out of that possibility. But I think to say that Jesus is the only one who has that kind of openness to God, then says it's not possible for you and me either. Mm. And our faith is claiming that it is. So if it's possible for us as human beings, then um, then it may be possible for some extraordinary others And as when well. you're talking about that possibility, you're talking about Paul, who says, you know, Christ is the first fruits, right? But we yeah. are made like him. And so if, yeah. if we can be made like him, if that's uh, basically metaphysically possible— well, then it could be possible that like there are varying degrees while we are alive of mm-hmm. consciousness of God or, or our consciousness being open to God. Yeah. Our consciousness being open to God is a, probably the most helpful way to say that. Yeah. And then his uh, the third presupposition of these three, uh, and we've been kind of dancing around this one. Redemption is closely associated with involvement in a community of faith. So we've already talked about how you do need another person you can't be a Christian simply with abstract theological principles. You have to see Christ-likeness, conscious openness to God instantiated in another human being. That's how it gets passed down. Um, yeah. Anything else to say about this? Well, so our recognizing what we see is often the gift of a community, the language of a community that can give words to say – you can see there's something extraordinary about Joe, but you don't necessarily have words for what that is until a community can begin to help you articulate that and and recognize what you're seeing. And since Joe is going to be imperfect in some ways, and so is Sally and so is Javon, um, it's it's really in a community of people that one really begins to get a sense of the fullness of what it means to be like Christ. So also in the book, you give these four reasons that his theology is useful, but we've, we've sort of already talked about three of them. I'll mm-hmm. just I'll say them. It begins <laughs> with individual Christian faith, faith experience. And it keeps coming back to it. And we've been doing that. We've been coming back to experience. It shares the common assumption that our faith depends on Christ in some way. And so it begins with our experience. We've just talked about that. Mm -hmm. Third, it assumes you can't be a Christian without a faith community. We just talked about that. But this fourth one we haven't talked about yet. So I'd like to spend a little time here. It takes doubt and skepticism seriously and finds a way to keep faith consistent with itself and also consistent with the, the best of what we know from science and history. At the very beginning, you mentioned he lived in a time of upheaval and we live in a time of upheaval uh, in, in different ways. Um, let's spend a little bit of time on this, because this is one of the reasons why I think he's so useful to us in 2019. Well, so if we're starting with human experience, then our best understandings of history and our best understandings through science are part of human experience now. Right. Oh, yeah. 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 I guess they are. Yeah. Right. Because 
So my experience being born in 1983 is fundamentally different than my experience being born in 1883 or 1783 or 583 by virtue of the fact that my world is different than my world would have been. And therefore, my and world obviously shapes our experience. I mean, it's it's intuitive, but I hadn't really put that together myself. And and it is a historical fact that there are people who have faith, who have a relationship with God through Christ in our time. Now, one could say, well, they're all deluded. Yeah, that's except, what I was yeah, taught. Yeah. Except that um, other deluded people don't live admirable lives. Hmm. And many people of faith do live lives that impress us and that seem to be more fully human. So this gets to something that's complicated, but I think worth trying to talk about. There's a difference between expecting to find in a group of people a handful of people on the narrow path, to use Jesus's terminology, Mm -hmm. and on the other hand, expecting to find that all members of some community will exhibit proof basically is correct. So we, we grow up, if we're evangelicals, lamenting the divorce statistics, that divorces are roughly similar uh, in you know Christian circles as opposed to non-Christian circles. And we, we think, oh, shouldn't uh, our communities be turning people into better, into better people than people who are in these communities? And in some, in some ways they do. In other ways they seem to not. That's there's an anxiety to that. There's an anxiety of like, I need proof that I'm in the right group. Whereas if we start with the assumption, people kind of get God wrong, they kind of get life wrong, but you do meet these people and they are more like Christ. And that's what we should be looking for, finding those rare gems. It's a very different psychological experience because your expectations that if those are met is so radically different. Yeah. Yeah. That's really nicely, nicely said. Thank you. How does his thought play into that, do you think? Well, so he gets accused of not having a very robust understanding of sin, uh, but it's not robust if what you expect is um, a clear set of rules that you could follow whether or not you were a Christian. But his understanding of sin is that sin is whatever it is that comes between us and that perfect openness to God in every moment. So what's sin for me now um, might not have been sin for me five years ago and might not be sin for me five years in the future. You mean meaning the same particular action, right? The same particular action. Using my intellect, for instance, can be uh, searching after God and after openness in some moments, and in other moments, it's uh, an attempt to understand so that I can control the situation <laughs> and control my anxiety about it yeah. by by knowing exactly what I ought to do and doing it. I should be paying and, you and for letting... this conversation as my therapist today. This is worth a couple sessions right here. Well, <laughs> I, I have lived through these issues. Um, I, they are common in but our you're exactly right lives. it's the same use of my like the intellect i'm using to write this paper you know i'm using my brain i'm using the powers of intellect that i have to like look for a thread look for a narrative arc it's the same thing i was using 
when I was reading apologetics books at 23 and trying to convince myself that Jesus definitely raised from the dead and the evidence proves it, you know, to, to control my yeah. anxiety. Yeah, exactly. So, so from the outside, maybe somebody could have known, noticed in the past that maybe that use of trying to quell your anxiety by getting resurrection nailed down, they might have guessed maybe that that would be a sin for you because it was your intellect substituting for your trust yeah. in relationship. But maybe not. I, I think, think most people would have thought, oh, he's a good soldier. This is He's yeah. arming himself with the armor of God. Yeah. So, so part of what Schleimacher invites us to is to be in a living relationship with God in which we really don't know how we stand based on external criteria. It is fundamentally trust. It's yeah. loving. It's loving God back. It, it, <laughs> this has become a very personal episode for me here, which I didn't necessarily anticipate. Uh, it's so obvious to me that that has got to be what faith is. And yet, damn, it hurts to not, have certainty, you know? Yeah. That's why that's why I think you'll like the book by Gerald May, Will yeah. and Spirit, because our our ego is maybe designed to protect ourselves by staying in control. It's a substantial thing to let go of that. It in the same way that if you're doing a, a Buddhist mindfulness practice, it's a substantial thing to let go. One other thought on sin, you know, his conception of sin as whatever gets in the way of my consciousness being open to God uh, in as many moments as possible, you know, in, in, and as robustly as possible. Uh, there are two benefits of that. Number one, it makes sense of Paul saying all things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial, mm -hmm. which, frankly, I had a really hard time with that verse growing up, given my understanding of evangelical Protestantism. That did not make sense. All things are not permissible, Paul, definitively. And then second of all, it does a nice job with the etymology of the word sin, which is missing the mark. If the mark, mm -hmm. if the bullseye is Christ-likeness, it is complete openness to God at every minute, then anything beyond the mark, it's not binary. It's not either a bullseye or it's bullshit. Well, that's, that might be worth uh, coining. Um, <laughs> it is... It is by degrees away from the middle. Like how open to God am I in any moment or in any period or in any in my marriage, in this friendship, in my studies? You know, it is a it is a missing the mark thing. And so it does some it has some some uh, some nice parallels there with with uh, good scholarship, I guess. Yeah, it's a missing the mark that doesn't require us to think that we're going to we're going to manage our own salvation by doing enough good, whatever good that is, whether it's reading the Bible good or praying good or taking care of other people good or taking care of the planet good. That to say that the, the mark we're trying to hit is perfect openness to God is to say in those moments when I am completely exhausted, it is a sin to make myself sicker so that I can't be open to God anymore. Mm. And if doing a good deed makes me more exhausted, makes me sicker, then the good deed 
is actually a sin. So there's a there's a level of attention to our own limits that is required in this theological understanding that yeah. can be avoided in other theological understandings. Yeah, we don't have time for this right now, but there's a really interesting parallel I just want to note between that and the idea of self-care, which is coming up a ton for me in grad school because you can't be a good psychologist if you're not yourself healthy. Um, you know, put your own mask on before helping others, basically. And this mm -hmm. gives a kind of a theological grounding for something like that. Mm -hmm. But there's a couple quotes left of his, and I'd love to try and get to both of them in the time we have left. Um, so this one we, we talked about a little bit, but we could say more, I think. Quote, dogmas or doctrine, as you were saying earlier, are not properly speaking part of religion. Rather, they are derived from religion. Religion is the miracle of direct relationship with the infinite, and dogmas are the reflection of this miracle, end quote. This is how I've been thinking about it recently, I, I realize, and I just found that quote this morning, um, but it lines up for me in that I think that what's going on with global religious traditions is like people experience God, they wake up in this world where there is transcendence, where there is beauty, where they... Um, they have these mountaintop moments. You have those moments preaching. I, you know, whatever. They have moments in silent meditation or prayer, and then they and then they go, okay. So what does this say about God? What does this say about the world? And then they build up these systems of thought in a kind of an organic way, and that's not wrong. That's like a natural reaction for people who are coming into contact with the divine. Am I getting it? Yes. Yes, you are. And that gives a really robust ground for understanding the variety of religious traditions as well, which is a yes. major benefit. Speaking of doubt and skepticism and living in a cosmopolitan, ever-widening world, it gives a nice ground for that. Yes. And Schleiermacher provides um, a, a scale of religiousnesses that is really unhelpful. That it's a, It comes back to that everything has to end up with Christianity being the best. Yeah that comes out of his cultural location. So here's a, crit a, a critique you have of him. Yeah. So, you know, I, I find it helpful to ignore that whole typology and to allow the understanding of the way openness to the divine uh, works in the human being to be able to work through a variety of traditions. And yeah. that allows me to then partner with and be in relationship with people who have who have very different understandings of uh, religiousness. Well, you imagine, I mean, you just can imagine what he would have done if, if he had had the 20th century um, in terms of what we've learned about the impact of environment on individuals. I mean, he's coming out of the Enlightenment, which mm -hmm. is like as individually focused as any time in any human history. And mm -hmm. we we know a lot more now about the way in which even our brains and, you know, it's nature and nurture both. But uh, even both of those things are sort of contingent in a way that that they didn't know back then. He's all, mm -hmm. you know, he thinks that because of when he lives, we have this like pure rationality and we have some part of it. And it, you know, it's just not the way we think about it anymore. And so he probably would think about that differently if he had that data. And same thing with Paul, right? Like Paul is a feminist for his day, but like mm -hmm. he can't go far enough with those principles. Or Thomas Jefferson can't go far enough with all men are created equal. It's like. You you can live later and go, I recognize the principle here. 
I'm going to take it to its logical conclusion that this person wasn't able to see while they were living. And there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. The, I think Schleiermacher is more aware than most of his contemporaries of the limits of reason and rationality. He's part of the uh, romantic conversations that push back on um, human beings just being thinking creatures. Um, But he certainly would make use of and expect of what we've learned since his lifetime. And he expected more to be learned. Um, So he wasn't expecting that his theology would be the last systematic theology that needed to be written. In fact, he would have been appalled had it had it that happened. Yeah. yeah. Because because he expects human beings as a species to continue to grow and develop in part as a result of our being in relationship with God. Yeah. Okay, last quote of his and this is coming back to my story, some stuff we've been talking about. I should be clear. I've been saying all the stuff that I was raised with. I was actually given a fairly nuanced and moderate picture of evangelicalism. Uh, but I, I did come into contact with a bunch of these, I think, less healthy and kind of more fundamentalist approaches, uh, including the one I'm about to say. So mm-hmm. one of the theologies I noticed uh, was like soul saved is the only dollar in the bank kind of theology that ultimately this is about eternity and eternal destination. I'm either going to go to the good place or the bad place. And that is infinitely more important than anything that happens here. Therefore, all that matters is sorting that out. But then in comes this incredible quote by Schleiermacher. The desire for personal immortality seems rather to show a lack of religion, since religion assumes a desire to lose oneself in the infinite rather than to preserve one's own finite self, end quote. And I can't read that without thinking about this thread of control versus wonder that we've been talking about. Wanting myself to live infinitely in basically some version of what I have now, uh, there is a part of that that is not very pious, right? Mm-hmm. It, yeah. How close to God do you want to be? Do you want to lose yourself mm. in God? Are you willing to lose yourself in the network of all that God loves, including you, but everything else as well? Um and if you're not willing to get lost in that network, um, you're withholding some of yourself. So, yeah. So one of the problems I have in my own liberal theology um, is making sense of the eschaton, the age to come. Uh, whatever, whatever comes that makes the pretty clearly unfair suffering of this realm of existence uh, worth it in whatever sense that means in God's mind. And I'm just riffing here, so I've not thought about this a ton, but let's chat about it because I think you might have something to say. Um, I often wonder if, like, maybe the kind of individualism of the West is a little bit of a problem here because it's hard to imagine sort of like another universe-like place where my particular consciousness is somehow transferred over to some other kind of entity such that my consciousness can continue in a way that I would regard it as still me. Um, Mm -hmm. Obviously God can do this and God can do whatever God wants to do and whatever God's going to do, he's going to do it. 
But I've I've thought a couple times like maybe a slightly more eastern tinged approach maybe is helpful here if we think that this universe is going to either fizzle out or contract back in on itself and at some point this whole universe was connected like physically uh, molecularly connected i also lean towards panentheism the idea that god everything in the universe is within god plus whatever it takes to be god i wonder if there's something in between sort of traditional christian thought and traditional eastern thought that might actually be a better way to think about what comes next and so this this language of uh losing oneself in the infinite is not too dissimilar from the dissolution the dissolving language of, of Buddhism and Hinduism, as I mm-hmm. understand them. Uh, maybe not quite to the to the complete non-entity form or something, but I'm just kicking this around. This is something that is real-time uh, stuff I've been thinking about. I'm wondering what you think of that. Um, let, me, let me pose a question that totally messes with the whole approach. Please. When you want to figure out the eschaton, what or what happens after death, our individual death and the death of the world or the universe? Why do you want to know that now? That's a great question. Of course, I know I can't know it. Uh, it's more like I have a hard time affirming a theology if I can't at least have some kind of language for it. Uh, I'm trying to be more comfortable in the not knowing. For me, asking the question, why in this particular moment, in, in this very conversation, is this coming up for me, is a way of noticing what the pressures are that I'm trying to escape and, how I'm, and noticing how I'm feeling about them in the historical moment that I'm in. In other words, I'm jumping to the future because something about the present is becoming difficult or intolerable for me. But where I am is still in the present, and where God is is still in this present. So for the most part for myself, I return myself there as soon as I notice that I've started to riff on what happens after death, what was the eschaton, because though that's another case of knowing is a way of uh, avoiding trust a little bit, or yeah. it's a way of avoiding uh, actually paying attention to the difficulty of the moment I'm in, the injustice that I'm watching happen to someone else, the injustice that I'm experiencing for myself. Schleiermacher isn't quite that direct in what he says. He just very carefully limits his entire theological discussion to what we can know in this life. And when you do that, that forces you up against your willingness to trust in the midst of not knowing and your willingness to be present in the midst of the difficulty that you're in. What happens if we, if we invite ourselves to, um, to be really present? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's more I could say, uh, you know, about my anxieties that 
basically the problem of suffering and evil is the only thing that could convince me that my experience of God is not real. <laughs> um, but that's, again, that's an anxiety that I feel in my body, right? And that I, uh, that I'm trying to escape from, um, and maybe not always for good reasons. Um, but either way, I think your, your kind of close there, pastoral close is kind of the best place to end this. Um, so thank you so much, Kathy. What an incredible conversation. It's been a great pleasure. I'm delighted that you found Schleiermacher. And I, I love theology because of what it can do to help people get unstuck from ideas that keep them from a deeper relationship with God. For me, Schleiermacher did that. And maybe he will for some of your listeners as well. Well, that's basically what this show is about. Um, and I think you will. And I, I'm excited to to basically dig deeper into his way of thinking and, and to mull over this stuff in the coming months and years. So I will have a link to your book and that Will in Spirit book that you mentioned in the show notes. And just thanks so much for, for chatting with me. Thank you. Thanks to Laura Kondaragian for editing today's conversation with Catherine. I have started including my Instagram and Twitter handles in the show notes. So if you'd like to follow me on those platforms, uh, you can look there. Again, to join the Patreon, it's five bucks a month. But there is also a sliding scale. If $5 a month is really not doable in this stage of life, email me. You have permission podcast at gmail.com and we'll get that sliding scale going for you. Um, but for the rest of us who can't afford five bucks, patreon.com slash Dan Coke or you have permission pod.com and click become a patron. That's at least two exclusive episodes per month and access to the patron exclusive Facebook group. Uh, I think that's it. We'll see you guys uh, in probably in two weeks. Maybe there will be something that I can put in that's sort of like an interstitial episode like I did last week. Not sure about that yet. I'm not going to worry about it right now because I'm expecting a child. Any, well, my wife is expecting a child, depending on what you mean by that. Okay, I'll stop rambling. Thank you for the support. Talk to you guys later.